0: Hello, welcome to the Freedom from Anger podcast. I'm joined today with Michael Gibeon. He has over 25 years experience as a mindfulness teacher, a coach, a mentor. He has studied under many of the great mindfulness teachers, Tik Nat Han, Jack Kornfield, Ravi Shankar, among others. I'm very excited to have him on today and have him share some of his experiences and some of his teachings. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for having me, James. Yeah, when I was looking at your bio and I was like, oh, I know those names. Like those are pretty big names when it comes to uh, a lot of Buddhist teachings and stuff of that nature. So yeah, that's that's my first question out the gate is what was it like to train under these very large figures? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I feel super grateful to just
1: happen to be uh, of the generation where I got to train with some of the people that we now know as some of the early leaders in mindfulness in the West, especially. Thich Han passed just a few years ago. So I know now students can't train with him directly, of course. And he he was an amazing person and teacher, of course. Jack Cornfield's still alive, luckily. He teaches mainly up at Spirit Rock in Northern California. Ravi Shankar, he's out of India. I got the Traveled the world with him for about nine years. I went all over the place and did retreats with him and trained right right at his side. And then more recently with people like Ron Kurtz who created Hakomi, which is a mindfulness-based somatic-oriented psychotherapy. So it's just dumb luck on my part that I've been able to place myself near some of these amazing people. And, and now I get to share what I've learned from them.
0: Yeah, uh, traveling yeah. out around for nine years. I mean, that's a, that's a huge, huge commitment. So just kind of diving into your history. So what led you down this path? Because like I just said, that's a huge commitment to, hey, I'm going to train. I'm going to travel, kind of leave the world behind, so to speak.
1: Well, in my case, it started with, I was looking for a spiritual path. I was raised in a way where my parents didn't impose their own beliefs on me, I was given the option to just choose my own path. And so in searching for that, I traveled all over the place, initially down in Latin America for a while, and then later in Asia and in India and in Europe. And in that traveling, I was constantly looking to apprentice myself to different teachers, and as a result, I was able to find some amazing teachers, but it was always a a deep uh, yearning on my part to have some kind of spiritual practice and and it evolved over time for sure. And so, my earliest meditation teacher was Ravi Shankar. And I, as I said, I was traveling with him for about nine years. Yeah. And um, that actually led me to a really important insight in my own development, which was that as amazing as that meditation style is, I found that I ended up without even knowing what this term was, prayer, as I ended up with what I, what we call now is a spiritual bypass which is a psychological term for avoiding my own psycho-emotional development through spiritual practices. And so the meditation was so effective at sort of keeping me above the fray of my own mental, emotional issues that I was at the end of that nine years, I felt stunted psychologically. And so I had developed myself spiritually, but psychologically I was a bit behind and so that actually led me to Vipassana, which is a Buddhist style meditation. Some people say it's the oldest style of meditation that dates back all the way to the time of Buddha, the human. And it's, it's amazing how some people think of meditation practices as monolithic, but there really are so many different kinds and the effect of them can be really different. And so when I switched to Vipassana. I felt like I had come across an approach that really would allow me to really look inside of my own stuff and slowly but steadily work on that.
0: That's leading right into the question I was going to ask was that a lot of people are really familiar with meditation. They're unfamiliar with, hey, there's many different, it comes in many different shapes, forms of fashion. I think kind of the stereotypical is I'm going to... I'm going to sit and think about nothing kind of deal and legs crossed and kind of the, but there are different styles and could you kind of elaborate a little bit like on some of the different styles and like what they entail and the benefits and that that sort of thing, kind of a meditation one-on-one type type thing?
1: absolutely so i i think of them as as two main categories the practice that i was doing before that for me at least led to the spiritual bypass is is within the category of concentration where you're meant to focus your attention on sort of a stereotype is like a mantra or on an object where that you can look at like we used to sometimes have a lit candle and look at the candle that's lit the flame And what those styles can do is really strengthen the sort of metaphoric muscle of concentration, which is great. But because you're focused on that point of concentration, you don't necessarily become aware of what else is going on, maybe under the surface unconsciously. So the other approach that Vipassana is part of is, is more of an open awareness. Actually, mindfulness is often defined as awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in present time, and then ideally non-judgmentally. So by paying attention on purpose, what we're trying to do is not necessarily focus on any one thing, but we're trying to just become aware of the entirety of our experience. And so like right now I can become aware of the place that I'm, my body contacts the seat, I can feel where the air touches my skin, I'm aware of the muscular contraction of my voice making these sounds. I'm aware that my eyes are seeing you on the screen, and I can feel my breath coming in and out. And then, of course, if I were feeling stirred up, then I would also have an opportunity to feel into the emotions or the mood or the feelings that are there as well. Or if you and I were having, like now we're having a pleasant conversation, so I'm aware of a pleasant feeling. But if we had conflict, I might be aware of tension or anger or disappointment. And those are all things that I can become aware of consciously through paying attention in present time.
0: Yeah, I know with uh, a lot of the anger management that I teach, one of the main things we always say, be mindful, be mindful, but we really don't focus on what that actually means and a lot of what i try to get my my clients to focus on is like you see like when you're starting to get upset your body it's going to do things so be mindful hey I'm, i'm starting to feel a certain way that way you can kind of cut it off before it escalates but you have to really be in touch with your body and know when those changes are happening and rather than letting the emotion outweigh the physical aspects of it absolutely in
1: fact The more we practice mindfulness, we might, it's almost like a pot of water boiling, right? We know there's that flame. So you might even start to, excuse me, get to the point where you start to notice this conversation is likely the lead to a part of me starting to roil and boil and you get better and better at identifying situations that are likely to trigger you and stir up parts of yourself. And so rather than explode on somebody and then go like, oh, wow, let me try and take that back. We get better and better at noticing, oh, I can feel there's that very familiar feeling. And as you tell yourself, they do become like very familiar parts, like, oh, here's that part of me again. And with a lot of practice then we can identify that earlier and earlier. And I think of it as like with mindfulness, I can actually be right at the surface of where what's unconscious to me becomes conscious and th- I can catch it sooner and sooner and sooner in the process and that makes me more in a position of choice and then allows me to be more responsive versus reactive, which is one of the things that I teach in, in good mindful communication is how can I, how can I respond to a su- situation versus be reactive to it?
0: Yes. Cause reacting, it's quick, it's dirty. It doesn't take a lot of thinking. It's just a uh, primal the reaction is, Hey, I'm going to really think about you know, what I'm going to do rather than react. Reacting is easy. It's, it's instinctual. It's quick. Yeah. But responding. It's completely it. autopilot. Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Being reactive is autopilot. There's no effort. And in fact, it might even feel satisfying because that pent up boiling mm-hmm. over feeling of anger, for instance, um, needs to be discharged because it's so uncomfortable. Well, so we can get kind of addicted to, well, that, well, that felt like a relief to, to let it go, but what even more relieving is to notice earlier and earlier in the process and not even get to the point where it feels like it needs to be discharged because I'm more aware of maybe what's under that. So I think of that, sometimes there's a technique I teach called listening to the storyteller versus to the story. So when I'm listening to somebody and they're telling me something, And I start to notice that part of myself starting to rise and get, I think of that as a color red, learning to overcome me. What I start listening for is not what they're saying, but who's telling the story. Like, what is, what's the motive? What is the need they're trying to meet? And that makes me a little more empathetic, a little more compassionate. It starts to kind of calm down and the color goes a little more blue, cooler maybe, which is really helpful.
0: Yeah. And. I always tell people, you just, you know, be mindful of when things are okay, when things are going good you know. be mindful of, I always say, Hey, what's your baseline? That way, you know, okay, things are okay. They're not great. They're not bad. Hey, things are just going okay. So when you feel yourself dropping below that baseline at okay level, Hey, something's going on here. I know example I always give. I remember one time I came home from work and I was just sitting on the couch. And my body was just telling me something, something's wrong. And I knew right then and there, like, I probably don't need to be having any deep conversations with my wife. I'm probably going to be short because there's something I ain't dealt with. Cause my body is right. telling me, I just feel it in my, in my gut. And I just told her, Hey, just give me a few minutes, son. I I got to figure something out. I don't know if I was hanging on to something from work or whatever. I just knew my body was telling me, Hey. Just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, it's kind of like if you get hungry or something, you get hangry, I guess. It's a little bit quicker with people, but but me and my body was telling me I just need to kind of step away, figure this out before trying to get back up to that okayness, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's super skillful. Excuse me. That's exactly what we're talking about. And it doesn't have to be clear as to what's going on. All we need to know is that I'm not my best self right now. So this is probably not the time to make an important decision or have a really important conversation. And so the more you get to know yourself, the easier that becomes. And that's part of that sort of daily self inventory that mindfulness provides is that you get to learn what your baseline is. What does the world look like normally to you? Does it look half full or half empty? Does it look like opportunity? Does everything look dumb to you? So that might be like, oh, okay, I see where I'm at right now. Right. And so by doing that daily or intermittently throughout the day, even it gives us a chance to get to know ourselves well, so that when we feel other than that state, then we can be onto ourselves in a way that, that really does help our relationships with ourselves and with others, because as you said, that would be a terrible time to have an important conversation. And if your wife had said wow, I really need to talk to you right now, you, you likely can say, this might not be a great time. Give me a few minutes to settle or can we talk after dinner? Right. And so that would, that's, that's huge. That makes all the difference.
0: Yeah. Cause unfortunately, once those words are out in the world, you cannot take them back.
1: Exactly. Right.
0: I've I've been down that road, it's kind of like a cartoon. As soon as the words leave your mouth, you want to reach out and grab them and then pull them back. But uh, it does not work that way, unfortunately. Well, yeah, and I think another thing is, like we talked about reacting versus responding, I think reacting, it's instant gratification. Mm. If I call this person a SOB, it's going to make me feel good for that brief second. I've probably escalated the situation. I've made things worse. I might later regret it. But it's that whole that instant gratification that we all so love.
1: Right. Again, it goes back to when we're present. And we're getting to know ourselves better because we're practicing that more and more, it gives us freedom of choices rather than the only option, which is to discharge that. And it might feel temporarily good. And we might even think they deserve it. What I'd rather have is a few options. And one of the options I like to have, excuse me, is, is I ask myself, what would lead to what I'm actually wanting right now? Because calling somebody an SOB probably never has led to what I'm actually wanting. If I'm wanting good rapport or better communication or to be understood or to resolve a problem, calling somebody an SLP probably never has once led to that. So if I ask myself in this moment, and I have to be present to do that. So oh, yeah. as soon as I start to notice that feeling rising up in myself, it's what happens typically is we go back to old ways of being. And if we think about it, those old ways of being almost never have led to what we actually want and need. And so to be in a position of choice, because I'm being present, I'm aware of what's going on, and to ask myself something like, what would actually lead to what I want? And so often that's something much more thoughtful, much more empathetic, which is much more feeling into how it might be for the other person as well. And it might be something more like, what I'm really wanting, James, is to feel connected. And so I notice that I'm feeling, starting to feel angry and That just makes me feel farther and farther away from you typically when you say something like that the other person leans towards you emotionally right does that make you feel more open if i say something like that if i say you're an sob that makes you feel closed so that that's one barometer like how open or closed am i feeling and how open or closed is the listener feeling and what could i say that would cut through that and lead most directly to what i'm
0: yeah, because that's the basis of all communication. We're trying to get something. We're trying to get what we want. When you look at why does a baby cry? Well, a baby cries because it wants something. We communicate because we're trying to usually try to get something. You might not always get what you want, but as the wise man said, sometimes you get what you need, right? Right, right. And I mean, then on the
1: other side of that is the, the idea of listening, not judgment, or what we call active listening sometimes. And so that's the idea of, practicing trying to hear what you're saying to me without imposing my own agenda or my own judgments on it just really trying to listen for what is it that you're trying to convey and you might be conveying frustration and disappointment and anger if i can feel through that and again listening to who who's telling that story i might be able to feel like well there's a part of you really just trying to express wanting some kind of connection that we're not having right now. We're kind of missing each other. And if I just act reactively to do that, then we're going to just continue to be missing each other. And so the more non-judgmentally I can be listening, and it's almost like I'm trying to put my own needs aside in that moment when I'm listening to you and really just trying to hear what it is that you're after almost like, and part of it is as I get to know my partner or my friends or colleagues better then it becomes easier and easier, of course.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something that uh, you do not see a lot of these days, that active listening. It's as soon as you say something that I don't agree with, then it's my turn to try to tell you how you're wrong. And like I said, not allowing that person to actually say what they're trying to say. You might not agree with it, but let them say their part. I mean, you look at everything seems to be political these days. This is my side, this is your side, but who's to say who's right and who's wrong? But somebody just says a name or something and the other person automatically gets defensive and then there's back and forth, you can agree to disagree. It's okay.
1: Absolutely. Or even take it a step further and maybe be open enough to where you might actually have a different idea about it. You might actually get your mind changed. And that, that's actually a goal of mine. And I think you're right. If we, any of us watch media right now, what's being modeled for us is conflict. And complete intolerance for anything other than something that mirrors our own opinion. And that's because media is trying to sell us listening, right? But the reality is if you take a diet from that on the street, there's a ton of cooperation. Just get to the nearest stoplight and notice how much cooperation is going out. People don't just typically barrel through red lights, right? People stay in their lane on the freeway, typically. There's a lot of cooperation out there. I actually really love when I have, I have a few clients in my world who politically have really different views than me. And I actually love having them in my life because I genuinely want to hear a different opinion because I might actually learn something. And it might be something about myself, but if nothing else, I learned something about them. What what do they value? What's important to them? And that doesn't have to be threatening to me. That can just be interesting because I care about them. And I think if we all practice that a little bit more, uh the media would go out of business, maybe.
0: Yeah, I love the opinion. Everybody has their different view on the world. Everybody has different opinions. And it's not me to tell somebody whether they're right or they're wrong. They're entitled to their opinions, just as I'm entitled to mine. Are they going to agree with all of mine? No. Am I going to agree with all of theirs? No, but they still have that right to have an opinion and it's nobody's job to tell them that they're wrong. Like you said, we could learn a lot from each other. Yeah. I don't want to be surrounded by people that think just like me. It's kind of boring.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. You're just preaching to the choir at that point. Yeah, Yeah. I can have, I can find many, many people around me that just can mirror what I think that that's fine. I think the mistake is in taking comfort in that. What I'm looking for is comfort among differing opinions, different ways of being, that's, that's building tolerance. That's showing that I'm building resilience in myself, which is one of the main factors in emotional intelligence, which is so critical is that I can, I'm solid in myself enough to where. I can I can be tolerant and in fact open and loving towards other viewpoints and other ways of being thinking or seeing or being
0: yeah, and then it goes perfectly so, into this time of year holidays getting around family members, maybe having opposing viewpoints on things, maybe the dinner goes sideways because Uncle Bob said it's something that not everybody else agreed with. So yeah, this definitely could be something that could be used in this holiday season. Being a really family, really being open to opinions, whether you agree with them or not. To allow them to feel what they're feeling. And unfortunately there are some people that feed off of the negativity. So they're trying to get a rise. So they'll give them that power.
1: <laughs> exactly. The. I think we can all relate to w- w- what I would call chosen family, like close, close friends. And there's a reason why we like being around them so much. And part of it is that they're not pushing our buttons the way that family can, right? And so I think it's critical for all of us to go into the holidays, being aware that it's very likely that the same dynamic is going to play out this year as it did the year before and all the years before, so like you're saying. The uncle that has some opinion that, you know, that is intentionally triggering for people or the dynamics between you and your parents or siblings. And what's helpful to me is to go into that, expecting that, knowing that I'm going to fall into playing the same role I always play just like they are. So what, what can I do? The only thing I can do is control the part I'm in charge of, which is me. And so what could I do differently? And part of that is to work towards not unconsciously following into that same role. Because imagine two actors on a stage, they rehearse this play the two-person plan, they're rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. And so they're playing off of each other perfectly. That's what we think is great art, right? But in re in real relationships, one person can decide to change up how they're responding or reacting and that changes the dynamic. And so imagine if uncle Bob goes and says something. And he's just waiting to have you really reactive, and you're not. Suddenly, that changes up his game, too, because it's like, oh, I'm not getting a rise out of you. So now what? And then suddenly now there's open territory to have something different happen.
0: Yeah, you just picture somebody rolling into the house wearing a Trump shirt or a Biden shirt. They 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 wore it specifically for a reason, because they know there's going to be opposing views there but i'm sure nothing like that would happen this year at christmas oh i'm sure that <laughs>
1: one no no of course it will of
0: course it will <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah you hit on a lot of great topics that we've covered quite a bit the emotional intelligence the power of choice in control of yourself you can't control the people if i had a nickel every time i told somebody that you, know, you can't control the people, you can only control yourself. So I'd be a millionaire probably. But unfortunately, that's news to a lot of people. I have choice. They made me mad. No, they were just being them. How you chose to respond and react. That's you. That's all you. You don't, might not agree with what they did, but that's still on you. That's the value that you put out there. And unfortunately they're going to do what they're going to do and You're not always going to agree with it.
1: Exactly. And in fact, you can develop skills to, like we were saying, anticipating if if a family member shows up with a Biden shirt or a Trump shirt, depending on what your family values are, if one, one or the other is going to be problematic, or maybe you have two family members that show up, one with each. But what would be interesting is to stay open and create enough space where you could start to empathize and feel into Like, what is it about them that wanted to wear that shirt, right? What, what do they value that makes them support Biden or what do they value that makes them support Trump? And if you could start there and even speak to, you know, it sounds like you, you really value a really non-porous border. That must be why you like Trump so much, for instance, right? So by, by joining them in what they value, that just creates more connection rather than suddenly like, oh, how could you possibly like Biden? He's so old, right? So it's just an opportunity to put yourself in their shoes for a moment, right? It's so easy. So this is one of my favorite bumper stickers is don't believe everything you think. It's so easy to think that everything I think and feel is completely real and right. And as a result, it's so easy to think everything other people think and feel could be wrong. And what if we just flipped to that a little bit and thought in, feel into what, what, what is this person feeling? What do they value that makes them care about that? And that would be a whole other conversation that could take place this holiday that might not have happened otherwise.
0: Yeah. Especially when it comes to politics, I've learned the hard way that no matter what you say or do, you're probably not going to flip somebody to the other side. It's kind of like, You know, we're very tribal in in our actions. We like our teams and we like our little groups and it's my team versus your team. And no matter what happens, that's my team. And you just got to go into it. Knowing that, like, no matter what I say, I could point out 15 different ways why your person's wrong. Guess what? You're still not going to change their mind. Just the best you can do is learn, okay, why you like this individual. Okay, that's fine. Maybe I don't have those same values, then okay, fair enough. Well, now I got an idea of what's, like you said, what's important to you. And, and a lot of the political stuff, usually it's one or two topics out of hundreds or thousands of different topics it could be, but you have those one or two topic voters, okay, if this person is okay with these two or three things. And this person's okay with these two or three things. They don't care if they nuke the entire world, but these two or three things are valuable to me. So that's what I'm going to, he's going to wag into it.
1: Right, exactly. And some of the things that I like to do that help make me feel a little more stable and resilient emotionally in myself, there's kind of three things I think of. One is mindfulness practice, right? And so I want to say that probably The most unlikely way to practice mindfulness, and yet something that's so readily available, is to mindfully wash the dishes. This comes from my teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh. So imagine the holiday dinner, you go into the kitchen and you go to wash dishes, and you're trying to de-stress from the awkward conversation. And as you do that, try and really just notice where you are in space. Notice yourself standing at the sink. Notice the temperature of the water, notice the sun, the plates and the sponge. Notice your breath, notice maybe the sunlight coming through the window or the snow happening outside, depending on where you are. And the more you can do that with something simple, like washing the dishes, it really brings you into the present time and it can really help settle you so that you're feeling even more sort of reset for going back for desert or for whatever is going next. The other side, the second thing I think of is really critical is having ways to healthfully and skillfully discharge the tension that might arise. And so for me, that's something physical. Make time to go for a run or move some heavy objects or get your heart rate up. Something like that. Those things can be so critical. Sometimes energy gets pent up and we need ways to move that so that you can feel, imagine after having a big physical day, how you just feel so spent, there's something satisfying about that. And we sleep better. We know people sleep better from a lot more physical activity. And then the third thing is some kind of way to be present with our breaths. And I'd love to be able to show you what's called box breathing. Do we have time for
0: that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, to okay. asked if you could go down that path either way. So.
1: Oh, great. Well, box breathing is, there are many types of breast attention. But the reason I like box breathing so much is it's really simple to learn. You can do it literally in 60 seconds and it's both 3000 years old. So it's got quite a proven history, but even the Navy SEALs have adopted it because can imagine the Navy SEAL, they need to be able to really regulate their nervous system on a dime. And so Navy SEALs like to practice this throughout the day when they're in these high stress environments. And so... The way it's good. The reason it's called box breathing is because if you think of four equal sides, and so the way we do it is you would inhale for a count of four, you'd hold your breath for a count of four, exhale for a count of four and hold your breath at the end of the exhale for a count of four. And then you keep going like that. In fact, can I just guide you in it for a moment?
0: Oh, yeah. Do it right here.
1: Okay. So go ahead and take just a big exhale to start. Good. Inhale. Two, three. Four, hold your breath. Two, three, four, exhale. Two, three, four, hold. Two, three, four, again, inhale. Two, three, four, hold. Two, three, four, exhale. Two, three, four. Perfect. Just like that. If you take 60 seconds, so what I've done is I've tried to train myself, but anytime I notice Myself being stirred up, triggered, tense, closed off, created a mechanism where it's like, oh yeah, what's something I want to do? Okay. Rather than explode or say the wrong thing that you can't take back or hold it in. Let me turn to this kind of breathing. And this is just one example, but the box breathing again. And so then again, I could do this while doing the mindful dishes or at the holiday dinner, just going to the bathroom. Just excuse yourself, go into the bathroom and take 60 seconds to do this. Four count, inhale, hold, four counts, exhale, four, hold for four. Just like that. Over and over again. 60 seconds, a few minutes if you've got it, and you'll really notice the difference. It really regulates your nervous system.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how, like you said, been around for over 3,000 years and it's been effective. And I think it's real neat now that we're with... Modern technology, we're starting to see all the scientific uh, benefits of just breathing. They found like the the vagus nerve in our body that's activated when we breathe, that regulates a a lot of our emotions and things in our brain. It goes from our gut all the way up to our brain. And one way to activate it is breathing. It's amazing how they've known about that for thousands of years, and we're just now figuring these things out but yeah it's definitely very very interesting and i've heard of box breathing before and there's a bunch of different breathing techniques out there real quick i want to ask you what are your thoughts on the it seems like it's kind of a it was a new thing but you hear a lot about the meditation apps uh, on your phone like the calm i think that's one
1: yeah, there's, there's actually a lot of great ones. I, I'm i a huge fan. I think it's a great way to get started. They do have their limits as a starting point. They're fantastic. I, I'm all in favor of people using whatever it takes to get started. The hardest part about practicing mindfulness and meditation is creating the habit. And we know it takes about two months of daily practice for anything to become a habit. And so if one can use an app, and in fact, I know people that you get like a 30 day free. So they'll do the 30 days for free, and then they'll switch to the other one for 30 days for free. And so that's a great way to sort of game the, the offers that they're creating, because you do need a couple months of regular practice for it to become habituated, and then you could practice on your own or go to an actual teacher. So like, that's where I would take up. I have many of my clients start with apps and then they come to me for more tailored, nuanced instruction. And also the accountability that, that as a coach that I offer them because I'm giving them very specific uh, feedback so that they can stick with it because the habit forming is the hardest part, right? With good intentions, we all like come especially come new year, we're all going to be looking to do things that are good for us. I mean, we all know these things are good for us, right? I mean, mindfulness has been studied now for about 30 years. There's great research on it. And yet many, many people still don't do it because we're human and that's fine. So starting with apps is great.
0: Yeah. I definitely recommend them because they say it takes about ninety seconds once we get upset for our body to process all the, the adrenaline, the cortisol that's going through our bodies to kind of let us calm down so we can kind of think clearly and respond rather than react. We have these things; these are huge distraction. We're talking about ninety seconds, but what you're choosing to distract yourself with is something totally different. I would rather you use calm apps. Then go look at world news or something that might just reignite the frustration or some crazy gossip celebrity BS. Uh, just uh, because I'd rather you do a breathing exercise, do meditation, or uh, do something that you enjoy or something you like to listen to, and just feel your body going through that. Remove yourself, calm down before you try to re engage with somebody. Because when you're operating with that lid flipped and all those emotions and all that stuff pumped in your veins is probably not going to end well.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm very pragmatic with these things. I think having really easy to access, short things that are gonna lead to big results is really useful. So the apps are great. I like Sam Harris's app as well. Um even having certain songs on your Spotify playlist that you can that are go to that can be really calming. Find find a playlist that's really really chill or calming or somehow takes you back to a time that you felt really good, something like that, because we know that that goes right into the brain, of course, turning to your breath with box breathing or other things, mindfully washing the dishes. The other thing I love to do mindfully, not necessarily for every meal, but as a, as a practice is to eat mindfully. Imagine taking like right now, our mandarins on our tree are really ripe. And so it is also from Thich Nhat Hanh, is to break down the eating slowing it down and getting really present and feeling the sunshine that it took to grow that and the rain that it took and the farmer's efforts and all the months of the tree growing and the fruit coming and then putting in your mouth and really tasting it almost like we call beginner's mind think it as if it was for the first time it's so easy just to gobble down 10 mandarins very easily in fact right imagine slowing it down where you're tasting it as if it's for the very first time and really noticing all those qualities, all those elements that it took to get that fruit to where it is and now into your mouth creates a greater appreciation. And in a way, you might find that it's the best tasting mandarin you've ever tasted because in some ways you're only really tasting it for the first time like this.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've read some of his his work and and he talks talks a lot about eating and really being mindful of what you're eating so yeah
1: not just being mindful of what you're eating but eating it mindfully right those are those related but not necessarily we're not talking about certain diets which i think is great too of course but just trying to in fact in europe we've adopted what they call the slow food movement which came out of italy and what europeans do so well is they take these leisurely two-hour lunches and what we've seen through studying that Mm -hmm. is that there's something about they're getting filled up historically by the good company and the laughter and the taking time over the meal. And as Americans, we've gone the opposite where we're just trying to gobble up lunch to get to the next thing. And we don't feel as full because the experience isn't this full. So we're filling up with calories where they're having fewer calories, but the experience is richer. So they're being filled up by again, the environment and the time and the luxuriating over a long lunch. And I think they're onto something.
0: Yeah, I actually interviewed a neuroscientist for my podcast a couple months ago. And I asked him a simple question. I was expecting to get a real scientific response as to what's the best thing we can do for our brain. And I was expecting something mind-blowing. This is a neuroscientist. This is his life. He's like, simple. He said, turn off notifications on your phone. He said, sit down and have meaningful conversations with people you enjoy. Just that. Just actually just be around and, and talk to people that, that you enjoy.
1: Like, yeah. Exactly. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: it seems simple, right? It seems simple. A lot of the technologies that I find are so powerful are both old. They're not necessarily new inventions. Humans have stumbled on these things for a long time, in fact, and they're simple. Sometimes deceptively simple. There's that great Netflix series about the blue zone communities, people that live over a hundred. And some of those qualities are that that they have great community, their support. They feel like there's a reason they get up in the morning. They eat well. They have fresh air. And th- those things seem simple and easy to underappreciate. And yet, what we're saying is that clinical research is backing up that those things really, really matter. And as we see, the opposite now is that people being increasingly isolated, especially with COVID, and now with the the politically, there's all these. Ways that we're just feeling more and more lonely and isolated. And that's actually really dangerous for us, but so having good community, having healthy connections, feeling the more present I am with people, the more present they are with me, it, it gives rise to a whole new way of being. And then the relationships are more satisfying more fulfilling.
0: Have you say, I haven't watched any of the episodes, but I've been wanting to rain Wilson, he was in the office and. He did a series this year. It's called The Geography of Bliss. So he travels around the world and goes to these different cultures and figures out what makes them happy. Mm And He he said he's often battled with depression. So he just travels around. And uh, I saw one where he was jumping into some ice water or something, like Mm -hmm. in probably, I don't know, maybe Iceland or somewhere. But it looks like a very interesting show. It's on Peacock.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. The NBC's network. I think that it's probably really interesting. I haven't seen it, but it's the same, same concept where it's likely that all of these things have already been figured out and it's easy sometimes to dismiss them because they're simple, right? And so I think that keeping it simple is actually a good thing because again, we're more likely to do it if it's complex, then it's harder to, harder to take on. And for me, it's all about creating. These healthy habits that I can sustain, I I really think of sustainability as this very broad category, not only sustainable farming and food sources, but sustainable ways of being that, that I can be healthier and healthier. I'm I'm in my mid fifties and it wasn't that long ago that being in your mid fifties was ancient, if not dead already, right? Maybe a hundred years ago that people were ancient at 55 and I still have a long time to go and. So these technologies are really critical to live a long and healthful life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Pitch 5 is definitely not. Pitch 5 is a new 35 or something like that. Like that. yeah. Thank you so much for uh, taking time to, uh, to to talk with us. Uh, think put out a lot of great information out there. Okay. So what's the easiest way of somebody contacts you, following you? do you do social media do you have websites this is kind of your plug area and, uh, and okay. i put some links in there too yeah
1: that's great so the easiest way is to go to my website which is michaelgibeon.com, just my name at dot com m-i-c-h-a-e-l-g-i-b-i-a-n dot com I am on LinkedIn so people can look me up there as well and I have a really great Facebook group that's private, but people can ask to join, which is the mindful coaching and counseling group. There's a few hundred members there. It's a really great community for all things, mindfulness and meditation. And they can look that up. It's the group itself is called mindfulness, coaching, and counseling, or they can look me up on Michael Gibbion on Facebook. But the website is probably the easiest way and that people can email me or contact me that way. And that's great.
0: All right. So no social media, no Twitter or Instagram. Okay. Good for you. I'm horrible at it. And, but I was told that that's how you have to put your stuff out there these days. So I had to right, reluctantly go down that road. But, but yeah, I'll definitely put a link to your website, LinkedIn, everything. I've got some more health stuff. I'm probably going to post after Christmas because, like you said, we're getting towards the, New Year's resolutions and stuff, so I'm um, probably going to post more of that, but yeah, I'm definitely going to try to get it out before Christmas, so hopefully have less disagreements at the, at the family meal.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, thanks James. I really enjoyed our talk.
0: Oh, thank you so much for, for being on and I'm forward to getting this out there and hopefully helping, helping a few people.
1: I hope that helps.
0: Thanks.